Hello and welcome back to Equity Tutors. Today we are going to continue with the energy transfer module and specifically we're going to continue learning about photosynthesis. So if you remember from last week's lesson we looked at the first part of photosynthesis which is the light dependent reaction and today we're going to go on and learn about the light independent reaction. So just a quick recap from last time what we learn is that in the light dependent reaction we end up with NADPH and ATP at the end of the process. And these are the products that are then used in the light independent reaction. So that is what we're going to go on to talk about today. Again, if you haven't got last week's lesson fully in your memory, then do go back and look at it again, because it's really important to fully understand what's going on at every point in photosynthesis. And I know last week's was a really tricky lesson, but if you just keep going over it, it will eventually sink in. So I do encourage you to do that. Today's lesson is slightly easier on the, the what is going on at each point, but there are quite a few things to remember. So again, it's quite a heavy lesson, but don't worry, it will go in eventually. Okay, so let's get started. Let's begin by thinking about what the purpose of the light independent reaction is. So the purpose of the light independent reaction is to produce carbohydrate molecules. So again, if you don't know what carbohydrates are, go all the way back to the first module in AS level and you can watch the videos and understand what's going on there. But yes, the point of the light independent reaction is to produce carbohydrates and these can be in a few different forms they could be starch they could be cellulose or they could also be sucrose again the function of each of these sugar molecules you can find in the biological molecules module so we want to get carbohydrates and the important thing to know about carbohydrates are that they are based on carbon so that is a very key thing to remember throughout this lesson because if we want to make carbohydrates, we need carbon. A couple of other things to know before we actually get into the steps of the light independent reaction are that this reaction requires energy and this comes from the ATP that we created in the light dependent reaction. Another thing to remember is that um, as well as being called the light independent reaction, this can be known as the Calvin cycle, so you might also see it referred to as that, but it is exactly the same thing. Although the light independent reaction does not require light to happen, it does require the products from the light dependent reaction. So after the light dependent reaction has finished, the light independent reaction can go on for a while after, but eventually it will run out of the products, the ATP and the NADPH that is formed in the light dependent reaction. So it can't go on indefinitely in the dark. So don't think that just because it's called the light independent reaction that there is no need for light because it does need the products from the light dependent reaction in order to work. The last thing that I'm just going to briefly mention is where the carbon comes from in order for this process to happen. 
So the light independent reaction takes place in the stroma of the plant. So again, if you don't know what this is, go back and have a look at the plants module. But these are essentially small openings in the underneath side of the leaves. And this is where gaseous exchange happens. So it occurs in this area because a key reagent for the light independent reaction is carbon dioxide. So plants get that from the atmosphere that comes in through the stroma from the air around the plant and that is the key part of the light independent reaction because that is what gets the carbon so that is just something to remember before we get started on the whole process okay so let's begin so we can break down the calvin cycle or the light independent reaction into three main stages we start with carbon fixation, we then have reduction, and then we have regeneration. And I'm now going to go into exactly what happens in each of these stages. Again, like last week, I would really, really recommend you either watch the video or you look at the visual accompaniment to this lesson, because otherwise it will be quite confusing with what's going on. It is a cycle, so remember everything happens in an order and then it begins again. So we have carbon fixation, reduction, and regeneration, then carbon fixation, reduction, regeneration again, and this continues. So let's first start off talking about carbon fixation. This part of the reaction starts when carbon dioxide, which is CO2, combines with a 5-carbon sugar, and this 5-carbon sugar is known as ribulose bisphosphate. So this can also be written as RUBP. And really important thing to remember here is that this contains five carbons. At each point in the Calvin cycle, you need to know how many carbons are in the molecules that you're talking about. So the first step is that carbon dioxide, which has one carbon, combines with the five carbon sugar, which is called ribulose bisphosphate. And this is this joining is catalyzed by an enzyme called Rubisco or ribulose bisphosphate carboxylase. So you can just remember Rubisco and that is the enzyme that joins the carbon from the CO2 to the ribulose bisphosphate. So this produces a six carbon compound and so we start with the five carbon compound and we add in the carbon from the CO2. So then we get a six carbon compound and this is extremely unstable. So this immediately breaks down into two molecules that each contain three carbons. So this is known as glycerate three phosphate or GP. So there's two of these molecules and each one has three carbons. So in total, we've got six carbons, but they're in two separate molecules. So we call this carbon fixation because the plant is taking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and it is making it part of the cell. So this is the end of the carbon fixation step. So we start with the carbon dioxide, which joins with the five carbon ribulose bisphosphate. And by the end, we have two three carbon molecules, which are called glycerate three phosphate. And that is now what goes into the next step of the light independent reaction. So as I said at the beginning of the lesson, the next 
stage of the light independent reaction is reduction. So at this point, the glycerate 3-phosphate, which was produced in the carbon fixation step, gets modified. This is where the products of the light-dependent reaction come in. So we have ATP and NADPH, which come from the light-dependent reaction. And at this stage of the light-independent reaction, the glycerate 3-phosphate will gain a phosphate group from the ATP, which then forms ADP again, and it also gets reduced by the NADPH, so that NADPH turns back into NADP, so these two things can go back into the light-dependent reaction, and this results in a product called triose phosphate, or TP. And it's important to remember here that we have two of these, so we start with two glycerate 3-phosphates, they combine with two ATPs and two NADPHs, and that gives us two triose phosphates at the end. So those are... So the triose phosphates are a three-carbon product, so they've got three carbons and a phosphate group, and this is the thing that actually gives the carbohydrates to the plant at this point. So I'm now going to go into exactly how that happens. So as I said before, we have the two molecules of glycerate 3-phosphate. They get reduced and change into two triose phosphate. And you have, again, two of these molecules. So two lots of triose phosphate. The triose phosphate has three carbons in it. So for every six of these that are made, so for every six triose phosphates are made, so that means the cycle must have happened three times because in each cycle you get two molecules. So for every six you get, one of them leaves the cycle. So on the third round of the cycle, one of these triose phosphates will leave the cycle and go on to other things in the plant. I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more about that in a minute. But then the remaining five will carry on into the rest of the cycle and start the process again. So that is what we count as the reduction of the glycerate 3-phosphate. And the next step that is in the process is the regeneration of ribulose bisphosphate, which we need to start the reaction again. I know that sounds quite confusing, so do go and look at the diagram so that that can make a little bit more sense to you. So now we're going to go on to the regeneration of ribulose bisphosphate. This is the last step in the Calvin cycle, so we are nearly done. So one-sixth of the triose phosphate molecules that are produced um, leave the cycle, as I just said, but the other five out of the six continue on and they are used to regenerate the ribulose bisphosphate. So this process requires ATP. So ATP donates one of its phosphate groups and it makes a five carbon molecule which is called ribulose bisphosphate. So this contains five carbons with two phosphate groups and then this is what we talked about at the beginning of the cycle. So this then goes on, combines with a carbon from CO2 under the action of Rubisco, which is the enzyme that catalyzes this reaction, and this then forms that unstable intermediate, which then breaks down into the two glycerate 3-phosphate molecules. 
I know this is a lot that's going on, so don't worry if this isn't making sense straight away. Just keep looking at the diagrams and eventually it will sink in. So the really important thing to know is that we have one molecule of CO2 coming in at the top that combines with the ribulose bisphosphate. This forms a six carbon intermediate, which is unstable, and there's one of those. This breaks then into two molecules of glycerate 3-phosphate. This then gets modified by two ATP molecules and two NADPH molecules to form two triosphosphate molecules. Then out of every six triosphosphate molecules that are produced, one of these exits the system and the other five get phosphorylated and go back to form the ribulose bisphosphate, which can then start the cycle all over again. So then the one molecule of triosphosphate that leaves the cycle goes on and can form hexose sugars, lipids and amino acids within the plant. So that is what the point of this reaction is. It's to make these glucose molecules and other molecules that are necessary for the plant to grow and to survive. So the triose phosphates can form hexose phosphates, which can then go on to produce starch, sucrose or cellulose. And again, we spoke about those structures in the biological molecules module. And they can also go on to make lipids um, for cell membranes and amino acids, which are used in protein synthesis. So they can, these carbon molecules are produced by the Calvin cycle can be used for a lot of different things in the plant. Okay, so now that we've covered all the stages of photosynthesis, we're now going to talk about some factors that can limit photosynthesis. So as you know, any reaction can have limiting factors and these are often common between any reaction that's happening. So some of them you already know. So as we said, the plant needs photosynthetic pigments to be able to undergo photosynthesis because those are needed during the light dependent reaction. They also need carbon dioxide for the light independent reaction. They need water for the light dependent reaction and they also need light obviously. So if there is a shortage of any of these then photosynthesis won't be occurring at its optimal rate. We also need a suitable temperature if the, and this is the thing that's common between all reactions, if the temperature is too cold then the reaction can't happen because there's not enough energy for it to occur. So generally in plants in their environment the things that mainly limit their rate of photosynthesis is the intensity of the light, the amount of carbon dioxide they can access and also the temperature. So in an exam, if you're asked what are the limiting factors for photosynthesis, it would be light intensity, carbon dioxide concentration or temperature. Water does also affect it, but it actually has a massive effect on other processes in the plant more than it would on photosynthesis. So if the plant didn't have enough water, it would be having much bigger problems than not being able to undergo photosynthesis. So don't mention that one. An important thing that you're going to need to be able to do in your exams is to interpret graphs that are showing these different things and say what is happening to the rate of photosynthesis. Let's just go through each one and talk about how this affects the rate of photosynthesis and also have a look at some examples of graphs. So for example, light intensity. So even if the other two factors, so temperature and carbon dioxide are good, 
if the light intensity is low then the rate of the light dependent reaction will be slower so there'll be less of the NADPH and ATP provided to the light independent reaction so that means that there will be a slower rate of photosynthesis. So the higher the light, the greater the rate of photosynthesis up to a point. It won't keep increasing forever and that applies with all of these things because at some point the other factors will begin to limit. So at this point maybe the temperature is not high enough or that maybe there's not enough CO2 to keep up with that amount of light intensity. So again, with the carbon dioxide, if there isn't enough carbon dioxide, then the light independent stage of the reaction can't occur and therefore the photosynthesis is happening at a slower rate. Again, if we increase carbon dioxide concentration, the rate of photosynthesis increases up to a point and the main reasons that it would stop becoming the limiting factor is maybe that there's not enough light or that the temperature is too low. And then finally, when we look at temperature, because the reactions that are part of photosynthesis rely on enzymes, these can only actually work in certain temperatures and they perform best at certain temperatures. So if the temperature is too low, then the reaction will be too slow and it will not be very effective. But if the temperature is too high, then we will get denaturing of these enzymes and that means that the reaction will not be occurring so quickly. So the main effect that we see with temperature is on the light independent reaction because that is where these where these enzymes are mainly used. So think of the rubulose at this point. So the optimal temperature for photosynthesis varies between different plants as well. So do remember that not every plant wants the same conditions. And the higher the temperature to a point the greater the rate of photosynthesis but if the temperature is exceeded then you will get a steep reduction in the rate of photosynthesis because the enzymes will not be working. There is another thing to consider and that is that when the temperature gets too hot then the stomata which is the site of the light independent reaction will close to reduce water loss through evaporation. Again, go and have a look at the module from last year about plant adaptation because we spoke about that then. So at that point, if the stomata are closed, then carbon dioxide can't enter and therefore the light independent reaction can't occur. So if it gets too hot, you also have other changes in the plants that can also reduce the rate of photosynthesis. So by optimizing the rate of photosynthesis, Farmers can increase their crop yield, so they can do things like increase the amount of light that the plants have, supply them with more water, keep the temperature correct for optimised photosynthesis, and they can also make sure the CO2 concentration is good for the plant. So making all of these changes can really help the farmer to get the most out of his crops. There is the caveat that these measures do cost added money, so they have to balance the cost of doing this with the profit they will make from the crops and also there is an environmental impact to this so if the farmer is using electricity to you know uh, control all these factors and to provide the light then that is going to have an impact on the environment as well. So just to mention the graphs with the light intensity and the CO2 concentration what you will see is this upward slanting line from zero which shows that the higher the carbon dioxide 
the greater the rate of photosynthesis. And then it will then form a straight line. And that means that the rate of photosynthesis has become constant. And that's because at that point, another factor is limiting the rate of photosynthesis. So you, when you get this flat line, that means that the rate has stopped increasing and that there is another factor that is now limiting the rate of photosynthesis. So that applies for both the light intensity and for CO2. However, with the temperature, we get an upward slope and then we don't get this leveling off. We actually get a, a sharp then downward curve, which goes back to zero. So at the peak where it changes from going up to down that's the optimal temperature and then after that that is when you get the denaturing of the enzymes and so therefore the rate is then decreasing and going back down towards zero the final thing we're going to cover today is how we measure the rate of photosynthesis so you should cover this in your classes and actually do these practicals but i'm going to go over it because they can ask you this in the exam so the first thing that we can use to test the rate of photosynthesis are aquatic plants and mainly we use a thing called pondweed and we can use these experiments to test the effect of light intensity, carbon dioxide concentration or temperature. So when we are doing these experiments it's very important to keep the two things that we aren't measuring constant. So if we're changing the temperature we want to keep the carbon dioxide concentration and the light intensity the same. The way that we set this up is we have distilled water that is well aerated so that means that it's got enough oxygen in it and then we have a dark room and we put the stem of the pondweed into a test tube that contains water and dissolved NaHCO3. So NaHCO3 is sodium hydrogen carbonate and this provides carbon dioxide for photosynthesis. So it's very important to use this otherwise there'll be no CO2 for the plant to use. Then we put a stopper on the top of the test tube and connect this to a syringe via a tube and then what we're going to measure is the amount of oxygen that comes off of the test tube so this will be a measure of the rate of photosynthesis so the more oxygen gas that is produced the more the plunger will be displaced in the syringe and the way that we control the variables is we can add more NaHCO3 to increase the carbon dioxide concentration. We can move a light source further or closer to the plant to increase or decrease the light intensity and we can perform this experiment in a water bath so that we can actually change the temperature that the plant is at. So we then use the equation rate of photosynthesis equals volume of oxygen produced divided by time elapsed to get the rate of photosynthesis. So if they ask you that in the exam, those are the things you should know. Another experiment we can do is looking at the dehydrogenase activity. So as you know, in the light dependent reaction, Photosynthesis takes place in the thylakoid membranes and we know that the electrons move through the electron transport chain from chlorophyll A molecules and these are picked up by electron acceptors NADP and this reaction is catalyzed by dehydrogenase. So if we do this in the presence of a redox indicator, so that's something like methylene blue or DCPIP, 
then these indicators will take up the electrons instead of the NADP. And this causes the indicator to, to change colour. So DCPIP, um, when it's oxidised, is blue. And then when it becomes reduced, it goes colourless. And with methylene blue, when it is oxidised, it's blue. And then it becomes colourless when it is reduced. The rate in which the indicator changes from its oxidised state to its reduced state, so from blue to colourless, can be used to measure the rate of the dehydrogenase activity and therefore that's the rate of the light dependent stage of photosynthesis because this is a key enzyme in the to do this what we have to do is you have to crush the leaves in a liquid which is known as an isolation medium this means that you have intact chloroplasts in the solution and then you do need to make sure that the this medium that it's in has the same water potential as the cells so that they don't burst or shrivel up so that is very important you also need to make sure that they are kept ice cold so that the membranes remain intact so then again you do this in a dark room so that you can control the light source and the intensity and then what you do is you add the redox indicator you add that to the solution and then you can change the things like the light intensity and the higher the rate of photosynthesis the quicker the solution will change from blue to colorless okay so that is all for today i know that was a lot do go and have a look at the diagram so it makes a bit more sense and Hopefully that will all kind of make a clearer picture in your mind as to what is happening during photosynthesis. So both in today's lesson, which we covered the light independent reaction and also last week's lesson where we looked at the light dependent reaction. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can access additional content on our Patreon page by searching for Equity Tutors, where we have a second 30 minute lesson every week, plus monthly bonus content. You can also find us on most social media platforms. We will keep you updated on new content and you can find us there by searching for Equity Tutors UK. Please like, share, subscribe and comment wherever you are listening. And if you're enjoying, please leave a review. Bye. Bye.